You're listening to the Word of Life AG podcast. This is the message from this week's service. If you want to view the full service, including worship, please head to our website at wordoflifeag.org. While there, you can also see what's coming up at the church or even check out some next steps. All right, let's dive into this week's message. Well, good morning, everybody. So glad that you're able to come and spend this part of your weekend here with us and join us at church. If you're new visiting, I hope you've been made to feel massively welcomed and that you are, um, you know, great that you're able to come and be a part of church this morning. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting into this with you this morning. Um, So Megan and I have been talking uh, about the plans for a sermon series. And so we have a plan for over the summer, we're going to do a nine-week series starting in July. So we're starting this nine-week series come July, so that got us talking about, well, how about June? And as we were sort of talking through it, Megan said, you know, after contemplating and listening and thinking about different conversations and um, different emails that we're getting and different correspondence we get from you know, people within the church, she felt that it's like, you know, I, I feel that it's appropriate and it's right that we do something that's uplifting, like something that's strengthening, something that's encouraging, something that will, you know, hopefully give people something to grab onto as they persevere through life that just seems to be right now. There's a lot of challenging situations. So Megan said, you know what, we really should think about doing something that, you know, really is going to look at the Bible and have something that's going to be, you know, uplifting, positive, you know, um, and energetic and those kind of things. So we got to thinking, we got to praying and talking some more, and we landed that we're going to spend the next few weeks, we're going to spend the next four weeks looking at the theme and the idea and what we see throughout the Bible where it talks about the concept of overcoming. And so we're going to be in the series as Overcome or Overcoming, and there's four verses from the New Testament that we'll take one week at a time, and we're going to look at each of these and see what it has to say and what it says to us about the nature of overcoming and that what it means to overcome. And so we're going to be looking at, this is next week, but we're going to be looking at Mark 9.23. What do you mean, if I can, Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And that's next week. The week after that, we're going to be in the book of Romans. Do not uh, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then John 16, 33, the week after that, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. And then today, the verse we're going to be in is from the book of Revelation. Revelation 12, 11, and they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. And this whole idea of overcoming, and even the word overcome in the New Testament Greek is pronounced nikeo. Um, my Greek pronunciation is perfect and unquestioned and not subject to scrutiny. But this is pronounced nikeo. And some of the English translations, when you see this word in the New Testament, it's not always uh, translated as overcome. In other English translations, it's translated into words like victorious or to overpower, or to prevail, or conquering. But no matter how you translate the word nikeo, it always paints this picture of there's a struggle, there's a fight, there's something wrong, there's an oppression, and there's an overcoming, there's a defeating because of this nikeo, the overcoming, the act of overcoming, the act of becoming victorious and winning the struggle. The Greek word is found 28 times in the New Testament, and I found this interesting. 14 of the times in the New Testament, you'll see this word nikeo, is in the book of Revelation. And while the book of Revelation is notoriously tricky to read, and it can be a challenge to piece together the different imagery and poetry from the apocalyptic style of writing, what is plain to see in the book of Revelation is that God's people overcome and live in great victory. That life as it is right now, or life as it might be in the future, it may be difficult and exhausting and painful, but that is not the end of the story. There is another day, there is victory, there is conquering, there is overcoming. If one person claps, we all have to. And I would like to thank Andy Leonardo for getting us started. (laughs) A great quote I heard a number of years ago in a sermon uh, that really has stuck with me. It's from a guy called Rich Wilkerson Jr. He pastors a church in Miami, Florida. And he writes, a Christian is never down. A Christian is either up or getting up. Isn't that a great perspective? A Christian is never down. We're either up or getting up. It reminds me of a proverb from the Old Testament. The godly may trip seven times, but they will get up again. 
Life has a way of knocking us down. Life has a way of being a trial and a challenge. But Nikeo, we overcome and we get up again. Overcoming means getting up and persisting and persevering and enduring. Relentlessly just keep getting up. The temptation will always be to stay down after you've been knocked out. But remember the timeless advice of a great American hero. It's not about how hard you get hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. And that is from former heavyweight boxing champion Rocky Balboa. In the middle of feeling knocked down, the relevance of this message is strong for you. If you're in the middle of a tough season, this message, indeed this whole series, the scripture we're gonna get into from Revelation 12, it's gonna be obvious about why this applies to you today. But I do wanna say, if you're here right now and you're not in a tough season, if you're here right now and life is going well for you, it's a good season of life and things are going your way, it's just generally a good time, I'd ask you to make note and keep this message somewhere in the back of your mind. Because when a tough moment comes or a difficult season comes, I hope you're prepared with the truth of God's word. And I agree with Megan. I believe that we need reminding that we can and we do as believers overcome. Overcome a number of different challenges and difficulties and things that come up just through the seasons of life. Maybe it's a relational difficulty. Maybe it's financial stress. Maybe you have a very real health concern today. Maybe parenting is absolutely impossible right now. Maybe you've got a long list of disappointments. You might work in a terrible place. Maybe you're a student who's dreading going back to college next year. But please remember the proverb we read a moment ago. The godly may trip seven times, but they will get up again. And so today and for the next few weeks, we're going to be all about getting back up again. We are going to be all about overcoming. And the key text for today, it comes from the book of Revelation. And uh, it can be difficult reading just a, a section of a book of the Bible, especially the book of Revelation, because uh, the books of the Bible are a complete work. And it can be difficult to just take a small piece. But there's a passage here that gives us great insight into this whole theme of overcoming. But please keep in mind that this is a, a small part of a much bigger section of the Bible. But I'll read a portion for us this morning for our purposes. Revelation 12, starting in verse 7. And there was a war in heaven. Michael, Michael's one of the archangels who's kind of like a chief angel. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war and they did not prevail. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down. The one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason, rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you with great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Now, the striking imagery and the writing style of Revelation, including the passage we just read, it's a fascinating study. Uh, the genre known as apocalyptic literature was very popular when this was first written in the first century. And for us, as modern Americans, it can prompt significant study, and it can even cause us to kind of enter into wild speculation at times. And I would suggest, and some advice for reading the book of Revelation is that we read, please don't try and crack the code, but rather take the encouragement and the reminder that Jesus is victorious. Hold on to the hope that God is actively fulfilling his promises. Stay prepared, stay strong in faith, and we will see the glorious culmination of God's plans and purposes. But our focus for today is from verse 11. Revelation 12, 11, and they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. Now you'll notice from the passage is that the object, what is being overcome is the devil. And while I don't believe that the devil should be the hero of anything, it's worth spending a few moments reminding ourselves what the Bible teaches us about the devil so we can learn something about overcoming. The common roles of the devil that you'll see frequently throughout the scriptures is that he's a liar. You'll see that he's a tempter, and you'll see that he's an accuser. The devil is a liar. This verse from John 8, 44. For you are the children of your father, the devil, 
and you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He's also a tempter. This from Luke 4. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the river Jordan. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. He's an accuser. We already read this in Revelation 12, but here's another passage from Zechariah. Then the angel showed me Joshua, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. The accuser, Satan, was there at the angel's right hand making accusations against Joshua. The three tricks of the devil. He lies. And bad news for you and for me, we believe him. The devil, he tempts. The bad news for us is that he gives an empty promise for the things that we want. He accuses. The devil takes the very worst part of you and he pretends it's the most important part of you. I'll say that again. He accuses. He takes the very worst part of you and pretends it's the most important part of you. The horrible truth is that we like the lies that sound good. We drift towards the things that tempt us away from God. And we have countless things that make us feel guilty and ashamed as he accuses us. But we have the promise that because of our faith in Jesus, we can overcome. We can overcome the lies. We can overcome temptation. And we can overcome accusations. An important thing for us to remember today is that the devil is not a true competitor for Jesus. In one of Jesus' parables, he uses farming as an illustration, and the devil comes up in the story, Matthew 13, 24. Here is another story Jesus told. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But that night, as the workers slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat, then slipped away. Now, the story continues from here, but for our purposes today, I just wanted to see how Jesus taught us about how the devil works in the world. Jesus uses this analogy of a, a sneaky coward, someone who waits for everyone to be asleep so he can cause problems. There's not a big fight or a showdown. The devil sneaks in when the coast is clear and then slips away. The devil is not a worthy adversary. This is not an even match. This is a troublemaker. This is a mosquito that needs squashing. First Peter 5.8, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like. If you have your Bible and you don't mind making notes in your Bible, grab a pen and underline, double underline, and triple underline like a roaring lion. Like the illusion of being a roaring lion looking for someone to lie to, looking for someone to accuse, and someone to tempt, but he's all talk. A friend of mine, he introduced me to a phrase that I'd never heard before, but we were talking about something in a situation that was going on, and there was a guy he was having problems with, and my buddy just dropped on me. He said, oh, you know what? He's just a telephone tough guy. I was like, what's a telephone tough guy? And he was like, well, when you're on the phone and an argument breaks out, it's real easy to be a tough guy. It's all talk. You get face-to-face -face on the chance of you getting a smash in the head, you, you mind your words a little more. Telephone tough guy. This is a perfect picture of what we have here. All talk, roaring like a lion, looking for someone to devour, looking for a way to lie to people, looking for a way to bring temptation, looking for a way to accuse people. A well-known passage in the Bible featuring the devil is Jesus' temptation in the desert. One thing that stands out to me about this is that when Jesus goes to the desert and the devil comes to come and try and tempt him and try and mess things up, Jesus is not at his strongest, what appears to be his strongest, but Jesus is at his weakest. There's this point, Jesus is hungry and the devil tempts him to turn stone into bread, and, but Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. The devil gives it a second try. Next, he tries to tempt Jesus to have rule over the kingdoms of the world. Jesus replied, the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And lastly, he tries to get Jesus to jump off the tallest part of the temple to test whether God would rescue him. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. The devil comes, he tries his best to corrupt Jesus. And Jesus doesn't have a fist fight. There isn't a military style war. He just verbally tells Satan, go away, push off, stop bothering me. 
The devil gives Jesus his absolute worst, and Jesus just quotes Bible verses. Essentially, I don't need to believe you. Leave me alone. And that's the end of that. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. This is not a wild and difficult challenge for Jesus. This is not a dramatic showdown. On another occasion, to the disciples, Jesus is teaching them about spiritual matters like demons, and he says this, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Not a long, drawn-out battle. He saw him fall like lightning, like that. Not after a long, drawn-out fight. Not after we'd had this long battle. Not after this long, no, like lightning. Done. The devil is not a match for Jesus. It is not even close. So then the question that I thought was worth considering is that where does the devil's limited power come from? And the best way I could make sense of this is to think all the way back to the beginning. And God gave Adam and Eve the responsibility to have dominion over all creation. They were trusted with the care, cultivation, and nurturing of the planet, vegetation, the oceans, and the animals. Creation was for humanity to both take care of and to enjoy. But the first humans, Adam and Eve, they gave into temptation and brought a curse upon themselves. The curse meant that they were no longer able to hold dominion over creation. Much of the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 explains that the act of God creating brought peace and order to chaos. In the midst of the fall, the consequence of Adam and Eve giving into temptation and sinning, the world descended back into forms of chaos. In the absence of dominion and leadership from humanity, because they were disqualified, the devil and fallen angels took up the reins. The devil and a number of angels who had been expelled from heaven, just like we read a moment ago, they fell like lightning, and the devil saw God's good creation slide into chaos and suffering and death and pain and unfairness and decided that he'll take the lead and fan the flames of misery as much as he can. The devil, the angels, were kicked out of heaven because they wanted worship for themselves. Satan wanted some worship. God said, nope, like lightning, gone. The devil fell to earth, caused problems, tempted Adam and Eve. When they fell, brought the curse on themselves, disqualified themselves from having dominion. He says, great, I'll swoop in. I'll take it from here. And how does he exercise that power? As we've mentioned, he lies, he tempts, and he accuses. In a world of injustice, suffering, sickness, deterioration, lies, temptation, and accusations multiplied the problems. And why does he do all this? What's the motive? Very simply put, he's a sore loser. He's a sore loser. The devil's fate is already decided, as we've just read in Revelation. His fate is already decided, and he wants to drag as many people down with him as possible. As a sore loser, he wants to cause as many problems as possible, with lies, with temptation, and with accusation. And what happens to us when we believe lies? Well, no one likes being lied to. According to research, we don't mind lying to others, but we definitely don't like being lied to ourselves. But a lie that sounds good, a lie that's saying what I want to hear, it's easy to fall for. A lie that's mixed with a little bit of truth, it's easy to fall for. And once you've believed a lie, you're at a disadvantage. Your decisions are tainted. Your ability to make informed choices is compromised. Your trust is misplaced. Your confidence may be in the wrong things. You're moving in a direction and preparing your life with faulty information. The truth matters. Believing the truth matters. While it's not the point of the message today, this is why it's so important that we tell the truth so that people, deservedly so, see us as people that are going to help them get through life because we are telling the truth. We are not hiding behind lies. We are not pushing forward lies. What happens when we give in to temptation? Falling for temptation means trusting empty promises. The same three things have been corrupting humanity since the beginning of time, sex, money, and power. Sex, money, and power is easily twisted to appeal to our pride, selfishness, and insecurities. I imagine that 90% of the world's problems would disappear if we were magically no longer tempted by sex, money, and power. But the temptation and empty promises that if you can get as much of this as possible, then your life will be fulfilled. Then you'll be happy. And yet we see time and time again, it just doesn't work, and it's an empty promise. And the devil's accusations, they lead to guilt and shame. 
and what happens when we're defined by guilt, shame, or even insecurity. Your future doesn't have to be defined by your past. We know this. We know this because we frequently hear stories of people with all kinds of backgrounds that go on to achieve amazing things. But if we are consistently reminded and made to feel guilty about the past, it can feel impossible to move on from what has happened. I've heard many stories of people who dread family get-togethers because their past mistakes will inevitably be brought up. When we're defined and we're living with a sense of guilt and shame and insecurity, we live with our heads down and our ambition is limited. Now, these are all things we instinctively know, and yet in our own day-to-day life and in our own private life, it can feel so much easier to say we shouldn't live with these things. We shouldn't live like this. But it's really difficult to live up to in reality. It's easy to see in other people. In other people's lives, if we see someone living, and they're they're living driven by lies, they're living driven by something that just simply isn't true, it's easy to spot in someone else. If someone is living in their life weighed down by temptations, it's easy to spot in someone else. When someone and their their life is defined and their choices are defined and the way they carry themselves and they conduct themselves, it's all driven and motivated by their own insecurities, their own sense of being ashamed of what happened and the bad thing that they did years and years ago is still defining them today. It's easy to spot in other people. And it is so much harder to see in ourselves. And even as believers, we still live alongside, our lives are still parallel to the lies, temptations, and the accusations. That's a part of being in this broken world. But in Christ, we're new creations. In Christ, we're born again. The Holy Spirit is refining and correcting us. God is continually finishing the good work. He has started within the hearts of believers. We might be parallel to the work of the enemy, but we don't have to be defined or confined to it. This, my friends, is what we mean when we talk about overcoming that we are not defined by the lies of the enemy. We are not defined by the accusations and the guilt of the past, and we are not slaves to temptation. Revelation 12, 11, and they overcame him, the devil, because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. And what do we learn from this verse specifically about overcoming? Well, let's break it down, and there's three ways to overcome that's listed here. Three ways to overcome. The first one, they overcame because of the blood of the lamb. They overcame because of the blood of the lamb. On May 19th, 2012, a historic moment happened. A meeting was held in Munich, Germany, and the outcome of this meeting would dramatically change the lives of countless people. Many people have since commented that this meeting determined the trajectory of humanity. 22 specifically chosen men gathered for this meeting, and the future was decided as Chelsea Football Club from West London beat Bayern Munich to become the European Champions League winners a truly historic moment. Now I watched this game from New York City. I celebrated, I cheered, and I enjoyed the victory. My brother, who's also a Chelsea fan, he watched the game from Ireland where he lives. Chelsea fans from all over the world, especially those in West London, were celebrating this victory. And all all sports fans get this. Your team wins, you celebrate, and you enjoy the win. Even the way we talk about it, we would say something like, we did it, we won, we are the champions. But I can say with absolute certainty that from New York City, I did nothing to help Chelsea win the Champions League final in 2012. My brother did nothing from Ireland, but we get to enjoy the victory. We get to share the victory. It's not a perfect illustration, but it makes sense to me. On the cross, It was Jesus' victory. He won the victory. It was his sacrifice. It was his pain. It was what he endured. And now we get to share in the victory. We overcome because of the blood of the Lamb. Now, if you're new to the Bible or you're new to church, that terminology may seem strange, and I'm sure it does sound strange to many of us. The blood of the lamb, it it sort of speaks to and it points back to what John the Baptist said when he first saw Jesus back in John 1. Behold, the lamb of God. That's what John the Baptist used to describe Jesus, the lamb of God who takes on the sin of the world. But John the Baptist describing Jesus as the lamb of God, well, what did that mean? That points back to the Passover festival that they would have every year. And at Passover, the individual families, they would get a lamb. What he means when he says the lamb of God. And the family would prepare the lamb and they would cook the lamb and they would pray as they ate and they would remember the Passover. And it was at the Passover, that's where the God's people, the Old Testament people of God, they would remember 
that God delivered them from slavery. Passover is when they remembered what happened at the Red Sea, when God used Moses to lead an entire nation out of slavery, an entire nation out of captivity. People that were suffering day after day were delivered. They left Egypt. They got to an ocean. They've got an army behind them, a sea in front of them, nowhere to go. Lord, what are we going to do now? I'm going to split an ocean in two, and you're going to walk through on dry ground. And then when you get through, I'm going to absolutely swamp out and drown your enemies. And this was remembered every single year. So when John writes in the book of Revelation, we overcome because of the blood of the Lamb. That's all pointing to look at the rescue that Jesus did. The rescue that happened in the book of Exodus, the rescue of a nation out of slavery and into freedom. That is a picture, that is a glimpse, that is a hint of the freedom that you and I have found in Jesus. Because of the blood of the Lamb, yes, it's all a way of pointing to the freedom that we have in Jesus. The blood of the lamb means the sacrifice that caused the rescue and the escape for God's people. I'm going to say something. Don't throw anything at me. My friends, I love you. I'm here to tell you. Joe Biden will not be the reason you overcome. Donald Trump will not be the reason you overcome. Ron DeSantis will not be the reason you overcome. The political atmosphere, it's heating up. I'm paying attention to what's going on. It's going to be the first time I voted since I've got my American citizenship. But no matter But no matter who wins the presidency, they won't be the king of kings. They won't be the Lord of Lords. They won't be the savior of the world. The president or governor or a senator or a mayor or a CEO or your boss is not who we depend to help us overcome, but it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This verse from 1 Corinthians leapt out at me this week, but thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and no one else, not a president, not a presidential candidate, not a governor, not a senator, Christ and Christ alone. A point I'd ask you to write down if you're in the habit of taking notes. Overcome because of your confidence, not in ourselves, but in Jesus. Overcome because of your confidence, not in ourselves, but in Jesus and what he achieved on the cross. Back to our passage, three ways to overcome. The second thing from Revelation 12, 11, they overcame because of the word of their testimony. They overcame because of the word of their testimony. Now, we use the term and the word testimony in modern English to either mean the testimony someone would give in a court of law, or Christians still use the term to mean talking about or communicating something good God has done in our lives. And the way we use the word testimony in a church today is consistent with how it was used in the first century. Just a few weeks ago, this came to my mind, I remembered, um, you know, as part of the message, I sort of put out an appeal for anyone here that believes that they are called to be an evangelist, that they are here to come and share stories of God's goodness, that they are here to make a positive difference, and a number of you stood, and we prayed for you. And I just want to let you know, as a staff, we are committed to continue praying for you. If you're here, you're an evangelist, or you're a gatherer, you're a mentor, we are still praying for you. Luke, our worship director, he was praying passionately for the evangelists a few weeks ago in staff meeting. We are still praying for those of you that have made it your business and your mission, and you know God has wired you to share the story of how he's moved in your life to help people connect with him. But for everyone, we have a story. You have experiences of how God has transformed your life. You have experiences of the miracles you've been a part of. You've seen God change people's lives. You have a testimony to share. And how does this help you overcome? Well, it inspires longevity. It builds endurance. Telling someone else a powerful testimony, it reinforces that for you. Sharing your testimony helps you overcome because it's like digging your heels in. It's kind of like developing a stubbornness of, no, I know God is good. I know the gospel is true. I know Jesus is who he says he is because of my story and my testimony. Telling the story, something about it cements it in our heart. I have stories, and I like to share them as often as I can, and whenever I share them, it just reinforces in my mind, and it just corrects my thinking, and it just reminds me all over again that, yeah, God has done an amazing things. God really is worth hanging on to in the toughest of times. The other thing I'd ask you to write down is overcome because of your testimony. Remember and repeat. 
overcome because of your testimony. Remember and repeat. In the Old Testament, you'll read many times that after something monumentous had happened, after God had moved in a dramatic way and God had moved in a powerful way, there would then be an instruction or there would be a response from people to build an altar. Other times there'd be a call for them to establish that no, this is an annual festival. This is a feast we're gonna celebrate every single year. There was uh, times that were designated as holidays, which, you know, fun trivia fact is really holy days that's kind of been re-edited. But set up a holiday, set up a holy day. There are commands to tell our children all about what God has done in our lives. Not just once, but repeatedly. And we get this because we still celebrate Christmas. We celebrate Easter. Last week we celebrated Pentecost. Why as a nation do we have Memorial Day or Thanksgiving? Simply put, it's to remember. Why do we do these things? Why do we have special days? Why do we build monuments? Why do we put statues up? Why do we wave flags? It's to remember. In the Old Testament, they built altars to remember. It's all to build this remembrance in our minds. This verse from Exodus. And in the future, your children will ask you, what does all this mean? Why are you doing all this? Why do we do this every year? Then you will tell them. Now, this is specifically talking about the escape from Egypt, but this principle stands. Why are we doing this? Well, I'm going to tell you all over again about how God moved in my life. I'm going to tell you all over again about how he proved himself faithful. By actively remembering, we get the chance to repeat and share our testimony. There's power in a testimony. There's power in saying the truth of God. Jesus to Satan in the desert essentially said, I'm not interested in your nonsense. Here's a truth from God's word. Now push off and leave me alone. It was a testimony. I don't need to listen to you. I don't need to believe you. I don't need your nonsense. I'm believing God. You can go away. And you know what? The devil did go away. Share your story. Share your story. Share it and share it often. There are things, there are ways that God has moved in my life. There are ways that he's moved in my life, Megan's life, my kids' lives. And it is a joy to share those stories. And by sharing those stories, it does something on the inside of me. To hear someone's response to when we tell them whether, um, I've shared with the church before, but uh, our twins, the doctors told us they were not going to make it. The next day, the doctors were all amazed and scrambling around the hospital room trying to figure out how on earth these babies have survived. When I tell people the story, their jaws drop. When I see that jaw drop, it reinforces to me, my goodness, God is good. He is faithful to me. When I tell God about how he dramatically got us to New York City, that's a long story for another day. My goodness, when I see people look at me with disbelief, it's like, did that really happen? Like, yeah, it happened. It reinforces in my heart how good God is. Remember and repeat. And I think this is um, worth saying. But when we think about testimonies, it's not always about the dramatic I'm as susceptible as anyone that's, you know, when a dramatic story, you kind of gravitate towards it, but we have a habit of elevating the dramatic stories, you know, I mean, like those testimonies of a criminal that gets saved in a jail cell. Like, we like those stories. We like the stories about, you know, someone was going to go and murder someone, and then they had a crisis of conscience on the way, and they were knocked off their horse on a road to Damascus kind of moment. Like, we gravitate towards those stories. But I know for me and my family, I'm praying my children have a very boring testimony, <laughs> I don't want my kids to have to go through painful seasons. If you're here right now and you, you've gone your entire life and, and you've kind of just been faithful to God this whole time, you've just decided from an early age, I'm sticking close to God, I'm going to follow Him, I'm going to put one foot in front of the other, and I'm going to pursue my faith. My goodness, I want that for my children. That's a wonderful testimony because the testimony is not about us. The power in the story is not us and the dramatic things that happen to us. It's about Him. A part of following Jesus is being okay with not being the hero in your own story. A part of following Jesus is being okay with not being the author of your own story. But sharing the story of how God has moved in your life, it has the power to help us overcome. Remembering and repeating how God has done incredible things in my life helps me move forward. Three ways to overcome. The first thing we said, they overcame because of the blood of the Lamb. Second thing, they overcame because of the word of their testimony. And the third thing, they overcame and they did not love their life even when faced with death. Your faith, it means that you're a part of the eternal kingdom of God. That you share in the history-changing victory that Jesus won because of the cross and resurrection. 
Your life is completely transformed. You're born again. Your entire life, your values, priorities, cares, concerns, hopes, and fears have all changed. You are a true new creation. You've gone from death to life. And this experience is not unique to you, but it's an invitation for each and every person in the world. The message of Jesus is not small and forgettable. It is the single most important message in the world. The effects of this message are impossible to overstate. The worldwide impact is impossible to fathom. The eternal implications are greater than anything we could ever begin to imagine. For the specific people addressed in the book of Revelation, the threat of death for their faith was real. It's been real for certain believers ever since the church was birthed on the day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago. While we're safe in our faith here in America, there are believers today whose lives are in various risks all around the world. Just this week, I was scrolling through Instagram, and I don't know about you, but I'm seeing more ads on Instagram than I've ever seen before, but that's another thing. But I'm just scrolling through Instagram, and this pops up, and I put it on here for everyone to be able to see today. But it's an article that I went on and read it a little bit later, but you'll see there the headline, two-year-old toddler in North Korea has been jailed for life after parents found him with a Bible. A two-year-old toddler has been jailed for life because parents found him with a Bible. Now, I went on and I, I found this such a shocking headline. I was like, hold on, is there more to this story? No, 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 it's as crazy as it sounds. The story has been verified as true. The toddler's parents were found to be in possession of the Bible, and the whole family, including the two-year-old, were sentenced to life in prison. Meanwhile, you and I can go to Walmart and buy a Bible. The population of North Korea is estimated to be around 400,000 people, and there are 70,000 people in jail for being a Christian. That means that 17.5% of the population of North Korea is in jail, not for murder, not for hurting people, but for being a Christian. We can all go online and find stories about martyrs and others who have given their lives or been imprisoned or otherwise suffered for their faith in Jesus. But the logical question is, why would they do that? Why would someone suffer for their faith? Why would someone value allegiance to Jesus so highly? My friends, that's a question worth asking. Why have untold numbers of people suffered mercilessly for their faith in Jesus? Why would they suffer rather than abandon their faith? There's a step beyond this question too, is that why when the church and the Christians are facing the most horrendous persecution, why when it's, when it's the most dangerous to be a Christian, why is that the time that church has consistently grown the most rapidly? My friends, it's worth contemplating. Why are people willing to die for their faith? Why is this family in North Korea willing to risk unbelievable injustice just to own a Bible? And there's infinite ways to answer that question. But I guess an overly simplified way is to answer it like this. They believe it was worth it. They believe it was worth it. I have never had my faith tested in this way. The biggest test of my faith happens in spring when the clocks go forward for daylight savings time and I have to come to church with an hour less sleep than normal. But there are millions of people throughout history who have brutally suffered for their faith because they believe it was worth it. I don't want you to suffer for your faith. I don't want anyone to suffer for their faith. But I do want believers to embrace their devotion and loyalty and commitment to Jesus with everything, in absolutely every area of life. I want to see believers trust that true life is not found in a little bit of Jesus on Sunday once in a while, but true life is found in pursuing Jesus wholeheartedly with joy overcoming the lies and temptations of the world because our faith in Jesus is more important. Rejecting sin and choosing godliness because our faith in Jesus is more important. Instead of feeling defeated and trampled and beaten up by life, living with an unshakable hope and determination because our faith in Jesus is more important. Great verse from John came up this week as um, I was looking at this whole idea of overcoming from 1 John 5. For everyone born of God is victorious and overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has conquered and overcome the world. Our continuing, persistent faith in Jesus, the Son of God. Who is the one who is victorious and overcomes the world? It is the one who believes and recognizes the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. There's a phrase that I've shared many times um, here at the church. 
Um, it first was something I wrote down while I was a youth pastor in Montana. If you've been around for a while, you already know where I'm going with this. I was gonna be speaking at a, a youth conference and I wrote down and it was like point C of my second point. So it, was, it wasn't even like a point, it was like a sub point. But I wrote it down and ever since I kind of wrote it down and I first shared it 10 years ago now, it's kind of come to be like my guiding philosophy on life. And one more time, I'm gonna share it with you. It's 100% chance this won't be the last. <laughs> but if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the only logical response is to follow him with everything. If you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, if you believe that he is indeed the savior of the world, if you believe that he is the only one, if you believe that he is the only one that could go to the cross and get the victory that we desperately needed, following him half-heartedly makes no sense. Following him politely makes no sense. Absolute abandonment, absolute commitment, nothing is more important than this. We may say this all the time, or I may say it all the time, but what does it mean for you? What does it mean to live for Jesus, to follow him with everything? To live with your faith and your commitment to God as the central fixed point in your life. And then to conclude that though it might be difficult, even though correcting the lies and relearning the truth might be hard work, even though resisting temptation might be a struggle, even though getting over temptations and habits and addictions might take more discipline and more hard work and might be more painful than you ever imagined, in the end, you'll conclude it was worth it. The third thing I'd say, the third point, is overcome because of your life. Living for Jesus is worth it. There's three ways to overcome from Revelation 12, 11. They overcame because of the blood of the Lamb. They overcame because of the word of their testimony. They overcame and they did not love their life even when faced with death. We overcome because of your confidence, not in ourselves, but in Jesus. We overcome because of your testimony. Remember and repeat. We overcome because of your life. Living for Jesus is worth it. Living for Jesus, sharing in his victory as an overcomer, it means that you can overcome the lies of the enemy because your confidence and hope and trust is in the truth of Jesus. You can overcome the accusations and guilt and shame that we may be weighed down by. You can overcome because God is rewriting your story. He's giving you a new story and a new testimony and a story that is worth telling. You can fight against temptation and overcome the reasons you keep falling into the same habits because you found that turning your back on sin, rejecting sin, and passionately, sincerely following Jesus is worth it. And while the devil and the world lies, Jesus is different and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. While you and I face temptation, we know the truth that this is an empty promise, and I don't have to give in. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, He will show you a way out so that you can endure, so you can overcome. Though you may face accusation, you may feel the guilt of what's happened in the past. God has promised to set us free, clean us up, and forgive us infinitely more than we deserve. From the book of Psalms, purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Because of Jesus, because of the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, and because even the threat of death doesn't shift our faith in Him and Him alone, we can overcome the works and plans of the enemy. From the book of James, Humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee. Our church's mission statement, lead people to become faithful and effective followers of Jesus Christ. What we're talking about today, this is a part of being faithful. It's enduring, overcoming, pushing through a season, believing the truth, not lies, having a confidence in Jesus. This is not just a theory. This is the lived experience of many, many believers. When we stop believing lies, you can stop being at a disadvantage. You can navigate life with a true perspective. You can stop assuming the wrong things. You can make informed choices in life. When we stop being a victim to temptation, we can stop trying to chase happiness in empty promises. We can stop trying to fuel our pride and selfishness. We can stop trying to tend to our insecurities in destructive ways. When we reject the accusation of the enemy, we stop living ashamed and riddled with guilt. 
we can lift our heads and our hearts can reject the accusation that we may deserve. But because of the cross of Jesus, because of his victory, my friends, we can overcome. A Christian is never down. A Christian is either up or getting up. The godly may trip seven times, but they will get up again. The devil is not an equal match for Jesus. He is not a worthy opponent. He's a liar, a tempter, and an accuser. But we overcome him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of our testimony, and we do not love our lives even when faced with death. We share in Jesus' victory. Overcome because of your confidence, not in ourselves, but in Jesus. Overcome because of your testimony. Remember and repeat our story. Overcome because of your life, because living for Jesus is worth it. And if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the only logical response is to follow him with everything. I got a couple of questions for you. If you're in the habit of writing these down, I suggest you do so. Maybe come back to it Tuesday morning, Wednesday lunchtime, Thursday night. Take some time, reflect, pray about it. It may even be worth having a conversation with someone about. But the first thing I'd say is, how can you remember and repeat your testimony? How can you remember and repeat your testimony? What are those things that have happened in your life? What are those monumental moments where you've seen God move? How can you remember those moments? How can you make sure that you don't forget that it's at the forefront of your mind, that it's not something that slips your mind or you forget about and you know, a decade later someone reminds you, it's like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. But no, 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 how can you keep it central? And then how can you talk about it often? How can you consistently spur it into conversation? How can you remember and repeat your testimony? And the second question I put to you, is a life of faith worth it? Is a life of faith worth it? The millions who have suffered for their faith landed on a solid yes, even though it cost them. And while you and I, we might not have that threat against us, that question is still for us today. Is it worth it? 1 John 5, 4, let me read this again. For everyone born of God is victorious and overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has conquered and overcome the world, our continuing persistent faith in Jesus, the Son of God. Who is the one who is victorious and overcomes the world? It is the one who believes and recognizes the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. And our verse from Revelation one more time. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. You may be here. I've said a lot of things. I've talked about the victory of Jesus. This may all be new to you. You may have been in church for a long, long time. I have no idea. But you're here today. This is the message I'm talking about. I'm going to believe and I'm going to have the faith to believe that God wanted you here today to listen to this, to be a part of this worship service, to be a part of the worship songs that Luke has been leading us in today, that this is the moment that God orchestrated to have you here. You're here. And I want to ask every single one of us to have an honest moment of reflection. Do I really believe this? Am I living with this? That whole, if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the only logical response is to follow him with everything. Am I living for him with everything? Do I still feel that there's a massive gap between me and God that I just can't seem to fix up? Do I still feel like God's out there somewhere? Meanwhile, other people feel like they talk about God being close and intimate and someone that they have a personal relationship and a dynamic relationship with, whereas for me, it just feels like he's out there somewhere. My friend, if you feel that there's a distance between you and God, if you feel that you're not living in that victory that Jesus won on the cross, I'd love to pray for you. And I would love to pray that you begin a relationship following God today, that you would make that decision, that I'm done with my old way of life, whatever that means, whatever is involved with that, and I'm ready to start following Jesus. I'm ready to be done with the past. The bad news is, each and every one of us have got a long list of reasons that we are disqualified from having a relationship with God. Each and every one of us, especially the person next to you. We all have a list. My list might look different from your list. There might be different stuff on your list than on my list, but we all have a list, and that list is our disqualification. That's the bad news. Something weird happens with people where we decide we're going to argue about whose list is worse than the others. It's a pointless argument because we are all disqualified. 
We have all messed up. The Bible calls it sin. We hate the word sin, but it's sin and it has qualified us from a relationship with God. But God loves humanity so much that he became humanity to pay the price that we could never, ever pay ourselves. He became humanity. He sent his son 2,000 years ago. And on the cross, he paid the price. He took the punishment. He took the consequences that you and I deserve to pay the price that we never could. God's love is proven on the cross. Does God love me? Does God care about me? Yeah, look at the cross. Yeah, he cares about you. We can be done with the past and we can embrace all that he has for us as we move ahead in our relationship with him. I want to invite everyone here to close your eyes and bow your heads. This is just give some privacy and discretion to those around you and so we can just focus on what really matters right now. But if you be honest enough and brave enough today to say, Tom, you know what? I'm not following God, but I want to start today. I'd love to pray for you. We do this at the end of every service. I give you my word. We're not going to do anything that's going to be embarrassing or humiliating. But could you just put your hand up just so I could see who I'm praying for today? Amen. Wonderful. Amen. Amen. Wonderful. Anybody else here today? Amen. Thank you. Wonderful. Anybody else here? Amen. We're going to pray in a moment. We're going to do this together. And if you want to be included in that prayer, could you just raise your hand up if you haven't? Amen. Thank you. Yes. Wonderful. Amen. I'm going to pause for a moment, not to make it awkward or weird, but I don't want to miss anybody. If this is you today, you want to make this life-changing decision, I'd love to pray for you. Anybody else here? Oh my goodness, word of life. We need to celebrate with those people making the best decision any one of us could ever make. Amen. I want to invite the prayer team to come down front and now we're going to pray this prayer together. The words are on the screen. And so I want to invite every single one of us to pray along together. But if you put your hand up and you're making this decision for the first time, I want you to pray this with passion. I want you to pray this with uh, believing that this has got life-changing power to it. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, everybody. We need to celebrate with people. Amen. Amen.